From your local Houston BMW Center Studios, welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth. Uncle Funky Larry Jones, he'll be joining us in a bit. But I am just uh, beyond ecstatic to um, talk to this goddess queen on the line um, who... uh, she is an educator, an activist, I'm, and I'm trying to keep it together. Normally, I normally I, I don't because I can feel her energy just over the phone and how incredible this is going to be right now. Uh, her, uh, her her book, An Awakening of Malcolm X, uh, a novel, uh, spotlights her father's adolescent years. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast, the daughter of Malcolm X, Ilyasha Shabazz. Welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be talking to you today. Uh, The pleasure is all mine. First of all, and and I don't mean this in uh, just a surface kind of way, like how how are you? How are you feeling internally? How are you? I'm feeling healthy. I'm feeling uh, good. you know, I, I feel faithful um, in, you know, all of the things that we want for our young people, yes. primarily life, yes. um, respect for human life, yes. um, you know, all of the things along that, um, that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I echo those sentiments because it's a crazy time that um, we are living in right now and with the attack on us as a people, um, especially women, um, you know, spiritual warfare is here, but, um, but, but I've been seeing you on the front line, just fighting for everything. I mean, well, you got it honest. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) you got it honest, uh, to talk about the awakening of Malcolm X, uh, a novel, why did you feel it was important to write this novel? And and and, and I have not read it. I, I did read a sample of it, and I'm definitely going to go by. But I want to read it um, and then okay. listen to your uh, you and um, and Tiffany's amazing voice um, on the audio book. But um, and I thought it was interesting to tell his story from his adolescent years. Like, why did you feel it was important to do that, or how did you what what sparked that? side to, to tell that story of your father's legacy. Well, yes, thank you. First, I have to acknowledge Tiffany D. Jackson, who's just an amazing uh, young adult novelist. And, you know, I had such an opportunity to work with her in this book. She comes from a film background, um, and it was important to be able to um, you know, to, to work with a visualist mm-hmm. um, so the reader could get a very good clear picture on Malcolm and the time period, the historical um, time, the height of Jim Crow, uh, the Great Depression era, and, um, you know, address my father's foundation, his parents, his father being the chapter president of the Garvey movement, um, uh, his mother being the recording secretary, uh, when you have two young activist parents, you instill particular values in your children, which they instilled in Malcolm, the love for literary, the love for humanity, 
seeing themselves as a global citizen. And so when his father was lynched, um, that was pretty uh, traumatic for not only Malcolm, but his family. And seven years later, that, that they would put his mother in an institution, separate the family, and take the land because his father purchased uh, in the 1920s land that was then reserved for whites only. And so his family was targeted. But, you know, and, and making sure to clarify that young time of my father's life so we don't think that you can go to jail and miraculously become a Malcolm X, but that it takes mm. values from the smart, forward-thinking adult to instill in their children. And, and that's what Malcolm's parents did. So when he found himself in jail, um, running from his identity, running from the pain of, you know, who am I as a black man in the 1940s, uh, 30s and 40s, um, that his family was able to come to him and encourage him to read and to join this uh, religious organization. And we discover Malcolm being very brilliant, very bright, reading all of these books. When he studied the dictionary, he studied it so he could learn the etymology word mm -hmm. so that he could be the best at debating, which he was, and, um, and also an opportunity to examine the humanity of inmates. You know, today there are approximately 3 million plus people in our nation's prison, and more than half are people of color, that in 2012 the U.S. spent $81 billion taxpayer dollars on correction facilities not education, not uh, after-school programs, but correction facilities, that since 1970, the incarcerated population has increased by 700%. And so, you know, this is what's happening to, um, you know, our young people and um, people of color and women. And, 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 you know, and so as American citizens, we have, the task of are we going to be a part of the problem and do nothing or a part of the solution and, you know, and demand change and, and participate in that changing process. Mm. So powerful. Um, I, I find it very interesting that you were finishing up the edits for this book right around the time of George Floyd's murder. And, and that's when and that's when the uprising uh, began. Uh, did that change the way you thought about uh, the project at, at all? Um, like, what, and what were you going through in your mind around this time? Did you just think, like, this is just divine timing? Like, oh, it's the same old stuff. Like, what, what, what were you going through emotionally? And, and, and did that change well, anything? Well, you know, mm -hmm. right. I think that, you know, there were so many young people who were politicized through direct actions, protests, in marches after being forced to witness the horrific death of George Floyd. You know, so during the, the time of a global pandemic, and we didn't even know what that meant. We were just frightened. I think mostly, I mean, people all around the world were just frightened. We didn't know what, right. what, what COVID-19 really meant. You know, we just, and some of us didn't even know what a pandemic was. And, um, you know, this was confronting every human being. We witnessed the negligence and the divisiveness of, of a failing administration. And, you know, I think the lesson in all of this for our children is that 
unity and moral character matters, you know, not divisiveness or cheating, mm. um, but that in the end, character is vindicated and cheaters lose. It didn't change my perspective on what we were going to talk about in the book. It just gave us more time to do it. Um, and in doing so, um, you know, I just happened to uh, have the opportunity to work with this gentleman who's a film producer on the West Coast and a biographer who, uh, who is in uh, Japan. And the three of us um, began having these uh, calling sessions. And, you know, at some point I was like, you know, guys, I think we're going to outlive this because it's no coincidence that the three of us are working on this time period of my father's life and each of us has different information. The gentleman in California um, had particular information, but the gentleman in um, Japan had all of the, you know, doing the biography, had all of the this amazing research of my father when he was in prison, you know, and that's where we discovered his love for poetry, where we discovered his compassion for humanity, you know, where he had a debate on the capital punishment um, in this country. And, and so it was just um, a time that was given, you know, extra time that was given to us, fortified by the fact that, the, that we were working on the same time period and we could share this information that each of us had to contribute um, to our individual projects. Mm. At the core, Ilyasha, what do you, what do you think the goal is of the enemy keeping us <laughs> down and, you know, suppressed and unable to tap in our true gifts by the food that they give us and how they're doing the water? Like, what, right. what, what do you think and feel? It, like, is the ultimate goal with all of this and how they're treating us? I think it's just wicked. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, it is the reason why I focus on education. I think that we need a better education curriculum in our country so that we're all clear that African-American history is American history. And if the terrorism of slavery and that entire existence and the subsequent massacres of Black Wall Street in, 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 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Rosewood, Florida, for example, are taught in our high school U.S. history class mm -hmm. to be as American as the Boston Tea Party, then we understand that our education would be based on historical truth. Yep. And more citizens would understand the necessity for reparation. We'd have the opportunity to ensure we're instilling a value system of truth honesty and human compassion in our children, as opposed to um, discrimination and hate. And I think if we understood in world history classes, for example, the truth that Africa is the cradle of the most advanced civilization ever to exist in mankind, yeah. and all of those impressive kingdoms of, um, oh goodness, uh, Benin, Ghana, Mali, mm -hmm, Egypt, mm -hmm. if they got even Talk half the attention it. that Greece and Rome do, then, you know, we may appreciate the present complexity of black civilizations in Africa without teaching our children hate and discrimination and rather focus on love and respect 
you know, again, for ourselves and for humanity. It's all it's about love and respect. I love how you, um, uh, in the awakening of Malcolm X, uh, you, know, you get at, <laughs> you know, the prison system for exploiting the bodies of inmates. I had, I've always thought that, you know, prison was slavery remixed. Can you just talk about the role of, um, of racism in prison in the criminal justice system uh, then versus today. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know that there's much difference. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> really? You know, right. There because isn't. It's, it's the same system. Right? It it's might be even worse system. now because of how they put things to kill us in, in our food and the water and everything. Yeah, it's awful. You know, there are 8 billion, 600 million people in the world. 80% are people of color. And, you know, even when we look at the marches and the protests over the summer, people of every ethnic background, of gender, you know, all kinds of backgrounds, proclaimed Black Lives Matter in 50 states in the, in the U.S. and in 18 countries abroad. And, and I think that speaks to um, this multiracial movement that's driving our nation towards a more civilized space. You know, a synthetic identity is being born. Our society is moving forward and um, bigotry and, and all of its ugly hate is losing and a new era has yet to define itself. And I think that's what's happening now. You know, that we are recognizing the humanity in one another. And we're believing in this universal brotherhood and sisterhood. And if we are 80% of the world's population you know, we can have change. My father said it would be this generation of young people who would recognize that those in power have misused it and demand change and willing to do the necessary work. Mm. Yes, indeed. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're speaking my language. I mean, you know, love, respect, unity, um, it's, it, it all goes in together. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think your father might say to, to, to black America? today especially the the black america well i think he might say only a fool would sit back and allow his children to be teached by his enemy and that Mm. we have to participate in that education curriculum that we have to participate in you know ensuring that the laws and policies are rewritten that all of these systemic um issues that continue to plague our entire society has to be um, you know, removed and, and, and done over. Mm-hmm. He said, if you put a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, hey, there's, no, there's progress. no progress. If you pull it all the way out, there's still no progress. The oh, progress is when unlucky. we sit down and address the wound that the blow made together. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so prophetic. I want to get in uh, to you, Ilyasha, like, um, there any books that you're reading? Any favorite TV shows? Like, what if you even watch television just for entertainment purposes? You know, just to have a little balance. Of, I do. Um, I so, 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 what you watching right now? Well, I want to see Judas. That's Me what too. I want to see. Uh, yeah, I have not yet either. I, right, I've been flipping through my channels. You know, when I and I haven't found it, and then I end up falling asleep. Um, I haven't seen it, but you know, I do. I like to look at programs. Um, I want to see what people are watching, mm-hmm. especially our young people. I, I want to see where we are as a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, books. Uh, I love all kinds of books. 
um, primarily historical books. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just to, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, because I can't help it, like Spirit is asking me, have, have you been noticing, like, even around you or just, you know, some of the people uh, just vibrating on a higher frequency and shedding some of the old things that they used to do um, and just in sort of kind of coming anew, like just having an awakening? I do, definitely. That's why we, we named this book The Awakening of Malcolm X. <laughs> mm, no. ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> <laughs> the book is available everywhere. Yes. Um, it, okay. it starts out. Listen, when I was reading um, the sample on the site um, mm-hmm. in the beginning, as I started reading and just the, how the whimsical and magicalness of, you know, the family being together and just, how Tiffany just put her all into that. I was literally vibrating throughout my entire body. It was just tingling and it was magical. Mm-hmm. And then bam, and then it starts and it goes, it's just so just out the gate. It is, it is brilliantly written and it, and it grabs you from the get go as mm-hmm. great novels and, and, and books do. Um, so I, Absolutely suggest. I am going to get my copy. I want. I want a physical <laughs> copy. Um, another book to add to the list because I'm learning so much. I'm in this phase. I've just been. I've had an awakening myself. <laughs> no pun intended. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. reading so much and finding out so much and getting what the true history of us is. Even you know, even beyond the African history. And I'm you know I'm, I'm talking about even that predates that. Um, so yeah, well, there's it's, nothing it's, that predates African history because that's the cradle of civilization. Right. And that's the reason why it's important for, you know, all human beings. We want to know history and it shouldn't be from the pers- a black and white perspective. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, right and wrong. And, you know, I think that is the most um, challenging part for us who've been so conditioned, um, you know, with these biases. And that's what I encourage my students. You know, it's about critical thinking and, it, and, and, and trying to uh, learn and read and see not from a black and white perspective, but a right from wrong perspective. And I think that is why we're seeing change today. When we witnessed the death of uh, George Floyd, I mean, my goodness, we're all questioning our mortality. Mm-hmm. So now we, we are forced to look at this horrific, senseless, brute, just awful, sadistic yes. killing of a, yes. of a man who's crying out for his deceased mother in his last breath. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it appealed to our humanity. It wasn't a black and white perspective. It was, you know, looking at it, it was wrong. And thank goodness all of those who are compassionate, who are humane, who do have a value system, got out there and protested. And to have people from 50 states in this country, you know, is monumental. And especially that they weren't just black people, right? They were black people. They were white people. They were red people, yellow people, pink people, brown people. There were all kinds of people who were out there proclaiming life 
you know, and, and that black lives matter. They got it. They understood now the horrors of slavery. Mm-hmm. Who would put people in metal um, contractions around their neck with these four and five inch poles sticking out? You know, who would do these horrific things to human beings? Mm-hmm. And like James Baldwin said, let's not look at me and force me to change. Let's look at you. What is it about you that had to turn me into a slave? I was at the cradle hmm. of civilization with all of this history that I could have shared with the world. But instead, we, we covered it. Hmm. And now we've interrupted humanity. And so we want to know the truth about, you know, these kingdoms that existed before slavery. We want to know about these civilizations, these first world civilizations of Blacks, Latinas, you know, people of color. Hmm. We, we want to know the truth about history because... Again, African-American history in this country is American history. African history is world history, and it has to do with each and every one of us. And so I think that there was an indication of just that kind of uh, humanity um, that was exhibited in, um, that we witnessed this summer in those marches that our young people organized. Mm. We're going to leave it right there. She is an educator, activist motivational speaker, author of the book, Betty Before X and X, a novel, and currently The Awakening of Malcolm X, a novel. She's the third daughter of the iconic Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz, the queen goddess, Ilyasha Shabazz. (laughs) Thank you for your time. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And we'll be back with more of the podcast after this. From your local Houston BMW Center Studios, welcome back to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth, joined by the market icon that is Uncle Funky Larry Jones. How you doing, Uncle? KG, I feel good. Yeah, me too. I feel real good. Vibrating very high. We would like to welcome on the podcast uh, neurologist Dr. Stephen Goldstein, a host of the Houston Healthcare Initiative. Welcome to the podcast, sir. This is going to be a great conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yes, indeed. Um, Well, let's get started. um, Tell us about yourself, just the basics, where you got started in medicine, went to college, and, and... how you got involved in, <laughs> you know, you're, you're fighting a giant here to uh, reform the uh, U.S. healthcare system. Well, in terms of my education, I actually got started in chemical engineering and then went to medical school at the University of Chicago and did my internship and medical residency there. And then I spent three years at the National Institute of Health doing research on mathematical models and things like that. And, uh, But uh, there was this thing going on you may have heard of called the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that, the uh, um, government had a job for me as a general medical officer in Da Nang in Vietnam. And uh, uh, I preferred doing the research at NIH to going to Da Nang. And uh, the only difference was I had an extra year between the time of my appointments. That's when I did my internal residency uh, um, at the University of Chicago, 
and I, I actually was surprised. I was much more interested in research, but I fell in love uh, with uh, practicing medicine. And so after I finished at NIH, I did my uh, neurology training at uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. And after I finished that, I came down to Houston uh, to practice neurology and internal medicine. And I've been doing that ever since, since 1977. So I've seen a lot of changes over time uh, in our healthcare system. And uh, uh, I have a, a, a bias, I guess, on how we need to, to change the system. Yeah, because I love how you put it, um, how, they, how it's set up to treat sickness and not how to prevent illness. And um, we have seen over the decades how it's changed. See, uh, can you talk about uh, Haven and that joint venture and, and that whole ordeal and yes. and how that well, started? You know. Yes. Well, Haven was a joint venture between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett, and J.P. Morgan Chase, and they figured they could put all their expertise together, all the uh, high-tech expertise and money, and they wanted to use uh, the fact that they had so many employees. They felt with that the, their buying power, plus using uh, technology, that they could lower the cost. Uh, um, but three years went by, and $100 million disappeared, and it went out of business without any real impact on the healthcare industry. And so the question, I guess, comes up as to what happened. Why did they fail? I mean, you know, it's, it's not often that Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon fail, mm -hmm. right? They're usually highly successful people. Well, I believe they failed because they didn't understand the current health care system is really run by insurance companies and large monopolistic hospital systems that make large profits and don't want to change. They're happy with the current system. And I guess you can call these corporations conservative because they don't want to change. They're resistant to change. We can see evidence of that, for instance, with the telemedicine that we're doing now. Mm. That technology has been available, uh, you know, ever since uh, FaceTime came out. Uh, and it's just in the last year because they were forced with the COVID epidemic to make use of it. But before that, you can get in trouble for trying to do telemedicine. Uh, just as an example, same thing with the electronic medical record. It took an act of Congress to get the hospitals to accept an electronic medical record. Before that, the records were paper. They don't want to change, and they want to keep things the way they are. And I think that's the main reason that they failed. Hey, Doc, this is Larry Jones. So with that scenario and the greed and the 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 uh, amazing disdain for any compassion how are you going to help us reform this this giant ball of twine i know one string at a time but how do you get started sir well we can't just tweak the current system and try to make minor changes on it. We need to fundamentally change the system. And to do that, we need to take a step back and use what Elon Musk calls first principles thinking. And the first question 
that I think we should ask is what is the purpose of health care anyway? Why do, we, why do we need it? And most people, I think, would agree that the purpose is to maintain our health. We want to maintain health. In fact, HMO stands for Health Maintenance Organization, right? That's really what you want to do, maintain health. But most of the money in our current system is not spent on maintaining health. It's spent on sick care. They call it health care, but it's really sick care. They, mm-hmm. If you get sick, they'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. But in terms of maintaining health, there's a little bit of uh, uh, work on that, but it, it, it's the tail wagging the dog. It should be entirely the other way around. Mm. And then the question then comes up is, well, how do you maintain health? Well, there are multiple things needed to maintain health. You need clean air. You need clean water. You need a working sewer system. Without those things, you, you people are going to be unhealthy. But we also need proper nutrition, proper sleep, at least a modicum of physical fitness, we need to manage the stress and anxiety in our society. And we need to avoid eating too much, drinking too much, smoking too much, drugging too much. And we need to diagnose disease at an early stage to avoid expensive care later. You know the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And then if we do get sick, we need a system that provides immediate access to a physician, immediate testing and treatment when needed. And we need to avoid the endless paperwork and bureaucracy associated with the current system. In short, any system needs to be patient-centered, not doctor-centered, not insurance company-centered, and not hospital-centered. Wow. This is a... um, those Those are noble, wonderful... We all agree with you, Doc. Well, the question is, how do we do that? Exactly. Okay. How do we design such a system? Well, thank you to Obamacare. In the law, there is a provision for a health care cooperative. And this allows a community of like-minded people to come together and design a health system that emphasizes health. Such a cooperative is not bound by the state insurance company regulations and would be receptive to ideas that would lower costs by using technology. As I pointed out, the, this, the system we have now with managed care and insurance companies, you come up with a new idea, they say, well, that's not covered. They're not going to pay for it. But in a cooperative that's owned by the members, and they see a way that what they can improve the care, improve access to care, improve the costs, and so forth, there's nothing to stop them from not doing that because they're not bound by those uh, uh, regulations. Um, and, uh, of course, if the, if the uh, uh, community owns the cooperative, the, it has financial incentives, incentives for the members to spend the health care dollars wisely, and it eliminates all the profits from the insurance company. That is, mm-hmm. quote, the insurance company, but it's not insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and this could be done by individuals, members of a group, let's say a, a, a large church could set up something like that, or a, 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 a company could set up something like that inside the system. Instead of buying insurance, they could turn over that function to a, a healthcare cooperative. And this would be good for the company. No company wants to be involved in healthcare. They want to 
they're making widgets or they're trying to expand their business, whatever business they're in. They want to increase their market share. They're not interested in spending a lot of time and effort on health care. Mm-hmm. But the employees would then be free to adopt the innovative ideas in the company. Uh, they could get the uh, out of the, the the companies would be out of the health insurance business, and the employees would have this cooperative. And I can think of you know things off the top of my head that would immediately uh, improve health care improve access, and I'm not the only one that can do that, but in our current system, there's no way you can implement it, but a system like that, lots of people can have bright ideas. I'm, I'm not necessarily the one with all the bright ideas. There's lots of bright people out there that have ideas that could help, and it could be evaluated and, and, and implemented much easier than with the insurance. Yeah, to everything that you just said, I'm just, you know, been connecting a lot of dots here because when you talked about the things to you know help you live a healthier life watch what you eat exercise you know significant amount of sleep when i think about the food and the water i mean that is it's it's not the best these 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 fruits and vegetables with no seeds <laughs> what is really going on how the water is um it seems well, you see, that's the, that's the whole point. You see, the the system we have now is just based with uh, doctors, hospitals, insurance companies. But do we need social workers? Do we need physical trainers? Do we need uh, scientists? Do we need people uh, um, uh, that will help us uh, and advise people and educate people on how to get proper food? How to, how to make sure the water is proper. You know, we, we have to maybe have to advise if we're in a neighborhood where the water is poor, maybe we need to pay for some testing and see what's wrong with it and how to fix it. This should be part of our health care system. The government isn't doing it, mm-hmm. right? So we need to take charge, we the people in the community. You know, if you have a group of people and say, okay, we need to fix this. We, we need to identify what factors are involved that is causing the ill health, whether it's due to the fact that we're not identifying uh, high blood pressure in the community or we're not controlling diabetes adequately, uh, whatever it is, we need to figure out ways to fix it. And the, the way of saying when you're sick, go to the doctor. When you're sick, go to the emergency room. We can see that system. It doesn't work very well. Yeah. That's so 20th century. What about our 21st century, and Ooh. how do we design the system that's better? I'm glad that you mentioned that. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned that, Dr. Goldstein, because I it, it opens up my next question as to, um, from a scientific standpoint, why hasn't the healthcare community uh, been more open to um, DNA repair and healing through frequency, through frequency tones? You know, I've seen some, you know, videos where, you know, there's a bag of sand on a flat platform and when it vibrates at a certain frequency, it creates this pattern. Um, and so I, I, from what I understand, you know, the same science is applied to when it comes to the human DNA structure through frequency and sounds. Why haven't they adopted that technique? Well... Now we're talking about a little different subject. We're talking about 
how do we, what, what things can we do to improve health? And you say, okay, I've heard of this. This might be something that would improve health. So this would then be something that you would research and find out, A, this is a good idea, or B, this is not a good idea. Uh, this, we, we need to do studies to understand. And there, that's what I'm saying. There are many different innovations that could be applied, and we could use those innovations, but we have to be careful that we make sure that uh, uh, there's a good chance they're going to work before we adopt it. So, Doc, um, what can you can you bring us up to speed on uh, on your Houston Healthcare Initiative, please? Yes. Uh, well, what, what what the Houston Healthcare Initiative is is a platform. It's a website uh, where I'm trying to put I, these ideas out so people can see them, and people can then say, "Well, I have a better idea, or I have a, a way of doing what you want to do, but here's a better way of doing it." Uh, how, how do we uh, let people know what ideas are out there? Uh, there's also education on there. There's books to read about the current problems that we have. How do we, how do we try to fix it so people can then see that? Also on the page, I have, uh, on the website, I have uh, 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 pricing, cash pricing, uh, for doctors' offices and visits and procedures as best as I could get. Now, the hospitals are pretty tight-lipped. It's very difficult to find out from a hospital what it would cost, say, for an appendectomy or what it would cost for a cardiac catheterization. They're very tight-lipped to get that information out. You see, because without insurance, it turns out you can actually get better prices paying cash than you can get from the insurance company discount. And so I'm listing those cash prices, and you can see the large difference there between doctors that have been uh, practices that have been bought out by hospitals and what they charge and what you can see from the private practice doctors and see what they charge. Uh, there's, the prices are quite a bit higher. Um, I can give examples, for instance, an MRI scan of the head uh, at the hospital. They, they won't tell you the price, but I can see it from patients that have gone to the hospital the prices range between $2,000 and $4,000 for an MRI scan. Mm -hmm. And that's not included the radiologist fee. On the other hand, it's posted on my website, you can get an MRI scan of the head, including the radiologist fee, for $350. Mm. Now, if you buy insurance, wow. the insurance company won't, you, you don't have to pay the $2,000 or $4,000. You can get the MRI scan, say, for $900, and you have maybe a hundred or $150 copay with that insurance, and then the insurance pays the difference between that. So, the difference if you didn't have insurance, it would cost you $350. And this is assuming, of course, you met your deductible. If you didn't met your deductible, you have to pay the whole $900. Okay, but assuming you met your deductible, it would cost $150. And if you had the MRI scan. Uh, just for cash, it's $350. But guess what? You don't have to pay the ins those high insurance premiums to get that. So you can, if people if people started paying cash more, then the hospitals would get less business. They'd have to do something. But right now, they don't have to do anything because the lion's share of their business 
is with insurance, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or private insurance. They do very little work for people with no insurance. So what has to happen is more people have to have no insurance. And you say, well, how do I do it? Well, the way you can do it is with that health care cooperative. Mm. Wow. Okay. I'm speechless. (laughs) I know this is radical thinking, and, and, you know, it's thinking way out of the box. Well, but it's time for that. It's it's that time. Very much so. Yeah. It's that time for radical thinking. And you just blew me away with the $2,000 versus the three fifty. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, people don't know that. But you see, that's the point of my website is to publicize this information so people understand more about the system and what's going on. Because most people don't even understand how all this works. Yeah. And give us the site, Doc. It's called HoustonHealthCareInitiative.org. HoustonHealthCareInitiative.org. And there you can find the the healthcare pricing and uh, everything that they're doing. They're changing the way people think about healthcare. We like man. This is that's good information. Yeah, it's great, Indeed. great information. We're going to have to have you back on later on, you know, in the year, just you know, just to reset uh, people who may may have missed it, you know, the first go round. Well, that, that's it. I mean, uh, so far people are skittish about trying to do something uh, different, mm-hmm. and. People have to get, you know, they're saying, well, uh, the government will do it. You know, we can get Medicare for all. It will all be free. But, you know, you have to watch out what free means. Right. (laughs) Indeed. Um, One example uh, I give is, um, let's say you have a restaurant. And you put a big sign out in the window, free lunch on Tuesday. And people say, well, that's great. I can get free lunch on Tuesday at this great restaurant. Well, there's a catch. In order to get the free lunch at the restaurant, you have to get into the restaurant during lunch hours on Tuesday. But there's this big line going all around the corner. Everybody wants the free lunch. And, you know, you try to get in there. You know, maybe you can get in there, but, you know, the ambiance might not be so good because the guy behind you will say, hey, buddy, hurry up. You know, it's getting late. I want to get in here. Move on. (laughs) That sort of thing. The food may not be the best on that day. You know, maybe they'll run out of some food, whatever. Uh, But it's free. You can't complain about that. And then there's all those people in the line when lunch hour is over at 1 or 2 o'clock. They say, well, you know, sorry, we're closed. No free lunch for you. (laughs) And the same thing can happen when health care is free because the demand can be high and people want to get into that doctor's office. But what I'm saying is, why do you want to get into the doctor's office? That's just an old-fashioned way of doing things. There are many ways that we can take care of your health without having to go to the doctor's office. I mean, one such example is the telemedicine, for instance. That's much better than sitting in a waiting room, wasting your time waiting for the doctor. If it was patient-centered, you'd, it would be like the app on Uber. You push the app on your smartphone, and a couple minutes later, the Uber driver pulls up with the car, and you're ready to go. You push that app on your smartphone. A couple of minutes later, the doctor calls and says, may I help you? You didn't have to wait in any waiting room. Yeah. I mean, this is a completely different way of doing business. Dr. Mm-hmm. Stephen, you have brought us some very 
open-minded thinking this morning, and we truly appreciate you and all the best with the Houston Healthcare Initiative. We're going to have to put a pin in it right here, sir, but please know that you have a home here, and we welcome you back at any time. Well, thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to convey these ideas. Thank you, sir. And for everyone listening, we wish you peace, health, love, and a ton of light. And we'll see see you next week on the Public Affairs Podcast.